Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And Ed, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Ron. And welcome. We have an incredible guest today I'm really excited about. We have Daniel Suskin on the line, and he is the author, along with his father, Richard Suskin, of a book that literally was just published um, called The Future of the Professions, How Technology Will Transform the Work of Human Experts. So, Daniel, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Thank you very much. It's great to, great to be with you. So you're a lecturer in economics at Ballo College in Oxford. Um, you teach and research, and I, you have two degrees in economics. Is that right? That's right, yes. And you previously worked in the British government and the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit and the Policy Unit in 10 Downing Street. Were, did you work yeah. in the Nudge Unit? <laughs> I, I, uh, funny, I worked alongside the Nudge Unit. They were my colleagues. I, I was there in the... The early days of the founding of the Nudge Unit, actually, um, oh, wow. it, it emerged. It emerged out of the Strategy Unit, um, in uh, which which I was part of, and then it, uh, because of its success, it became a, a unit in its own right. Um, uh, so, yeah, a lot a lot of that team are, are good friends of mine. Has it, has it has it overall been a success? The Nudge Unit, would you say? Oh, I, I think it's been. I think it's been a great success. I think it's been a success both in uh, a practical sense in terms of, you know, I think more and more policymakers are appealing to more realistic ideas of how it is that human beings behave in designing their policies. So from a practical point of view, it's a good thing. But also just from a sort of a general uh, you know, outside of the policymaking world, the success of the nudge unit and the success of the books that have been written around it means that this area of research, you know, behavioral economics, that's basically what it is. It's based on behavioral economics. So this is right. economics that's rooted in psychology, you know, rooted in uh, assumptions about, you know, not, not always assuming that people are entirely rational and self-interested, but they might behave uh, in a irrational or a, a kind of a, a non-self-interested way, and there's lots of there's lots of color to it. But you know, in general, the second success I think is that this, these books and this unit has raised the profile of this literature. 
um, which, you know, it's not a new literature. It's not a new area of research. It's been going on for decades. Um, but only in the past few years has it really come to the public consciousness. And I think it's partly a success of the Nudge Unit and, and those and, and people who have been involved in it writing um, accessible books about, about the thinking. Right. Do you know Rory Sutherland by chance from Ogilvy over there in the UK? I don't. I I don't know him uh, personally, but I've I've been in a. I've I've, um, I've come I've come across him a few times. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He's a big believer in behavioral economics for for advertising agencies and believes that they yeah. don't become behavioral economists. They're going to become irrelevant. Um, which the other thing I, I wanted to give you a chance to do is just maybe profile your father for us because I know you co-wrote the book with your dad, and that's just awesome. I have to tell you what a what a thrill to be able to work with your dad on on a project like this. But uh, can you give us a little background on your dad? Because I'm mm. I'm familiar with him. I read The End of Lawyers and some of his other books, but I'll, I'll let you go ahead and lay out his bio sure i mean so he's he's been working in the the field of law and technology for the past 34 years really um he in the uk he's it advisor to the to the lord chief justice um and he advises governments and he advises international firms on how to use technology i mean in the, in the government case on how to use technology to improve access to justice um, and in the in the commercial setting, advising firms on how to use technology to to provide you know, more affordable access to to legal advice to their clients. Um, but as you said, you know he's written widely. He's written eight books, I think it is, on technology and the law. Um, and um, I mean, the, the story about how we came to write this book together is an interesting one. He, he had been, as I said, you know, working in the field of technology and the law for the past you know, 34 years and generally talking to audiences of lawyers. Uh, and what had happened was that after talking to audiences of lawyers, occasionally a stray doctor or a stray teacher or a stray architect would approach him at the end and say, you know, what you're talking about in the legal profession is very interesting, but it appears to apply equally well in our profession as well. Uh, and we spoke, we first spoke about this. It was back in 2010 when, when I was working in, it was in the, in the prime minister's office and I was in the policy unit working on lots of different policy areas on health policy, on education policy, on tax policy. Uh, and I had a good overview of lots of different professions. Uh, and, it was clear that the thinking that my dad had developed in the legal profession was applied equally well in these other professions. Uh, so we had this idea of, of joining forces uh, and investigating the professions more generally. And, and the result was this book. So the book in part draws on the thinking that he's developed in the legal profession um, over the past few decades, but it also I mean, there's a lot of new thinking in the book as well. draws on a set of more than 100 interviews that we did with people in the professions and outside the professions, um, leading technologists and people who write about technology, and hundreds and hundreds of different sources, both you know, traditional academic material and, and lots of online material as well. Right. I really uh, thoroughly appreciated your guys' thorough homework on this book. It's really well documented, and I liked how you tackled diff eight, I think, eight different professions, right? Doctors. Right, and yeah. 
lawyers, accountants, auditors, architects, journalists, teachers, and clergy. So, Daniel, from the book, you you wrote this towards the opening. You say, this book is about the professions and the systems and people that will replace them. We are advancing into a post-professional society. Now, I know that term comes from another book. Um, What is it? Ivan Illich or something in 1977 wrote that. Um, But explain that. What is a post-professional society? Mm. So the book is about how technology will affect the professions. Uh, And we we set out two futures for the professions. Um, So the first future for the professions is reassuringly familiar. Now, it's just, it's a more efficient version of what we have today. Uh, and in this future, professionals use technology, but to basically streamline and optimize the traditional ways in which they've worked. It's just a more efficient 19th century way of working. Uh, right. And we see lots of examples of this. You know, doctors using Skype to talk to patients, teachers drawing on online material uh, in their classrooms, yeah, architects using computer-assisted design software to design a taller and more complicated buildings. Um, but the second future is a very different proposition, and that and that's the one that you that you have uh, appealed to there. And it's it's where these systems and machines not only make the traditional ways of working and more efficient uh, and optimize them, but actively displaces the work of traditional professionals. Uh, and, and we think that for now, these two futures will develop in parallel. But in the long run, we expect that second future to, to dominate. You know, we will find new and better ways of sharing expertise in society. And we argue that this will lead to a dismantling of the traditional professions. And, and to an extent, you know, we already see this second future. Now, last year in America, 48 million Americans used online tax preparation software rather than a traditional tax accountant to help them. Now, that, right. that's a very, very different way of delivering the sort of expertise that used to just be locked up in the heads of tax professionals or buried away in their filing cabinets. Now, on eBay last year, there were 60 million disputes that arise that were resolved online using what's called an e-mediation platform without traditional lawyers. Now, bear in mind that 60 million disputes is three times as many lawsuits as are filed in the entire U.S. justice system. These are significant quantities of work that traditionally would have had to be uh, carried out by traditional professions, but now are done by people and systems that look very, very different to those traditional ways. So that's what we mean, that those two examples give you a sense of the sort of world that we think we're, we're entering into. Yeah, and boy, do you do you lay out all of these different ways technology is increasing corroboration and knowledge sharing and knowledge elicitation. And I, I love the example about the uh, robot pharmacy at the University of California, San Francisco, with two million yeah. prescriptions without errors. I mean, uh, when you well, think about, now, I mean, interestingly, it's now six million prescriptions, and there's been one error, and that error was down to human error. <laughs> 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 kind of like the driverless car being rear-ended very by another similar, human. Very similar, effect, very similar effect. And and then there, you know, other other apps, uh, things like patients like me, where you you know, crowdsource with other patients that have your diagnosis, and just a way to share knowledge and and all of that. I mean that that is very transformative and quite disruptive to the 
the, the grand bargain, so to speak, as you guys call it, of the professions. Mm. I think that's right. So just to, we, we set out at the start of the book what we call the grand bargain. And, and this is an arrangement that, that holds across the professions, which allows certain people, namely the professions, exclusivity over providing certain types of services. So only lawyers can provide certain types of legal advice, only doctors can provide certain types of medical advice, and so on. Um, and the examples that you just gave there challenge the background bargain to an extent. They challenge the exclusivity of the professions. They're these old gatekeepers who you know, traditionally have been the only way to access certain types of, for example, legal expertise or medical expertise. You know, patients like me is a good example. That's a, uh, several hundred thousand people who come together to share uh, their insights and their experience and their knowledge of their own illnesses and the treatment plans that they went through with each other. Now, and sometimes there is intervention by traditional doctors, but in many cases there isn't. Now, that's a very different way of, of sharing expertise. Um, and you see this across the professions, whether it's Edmodo in education or Sermo in in medicine or Arcanet in architecture or you know, there's just a there's a whole host of these new these new systems and and, and new platforms. Um, you know, when, when we began writing the book in 2010, our main preoccupation was with the current professions. You know, we were asking and trying to understand how it was that technology was changing the sort of things that professionals and the professions have traditionally done. Um, but as our thinking and our work progressed, we realized that actually there was a more fundamental question that we had to address, uh, which was, how is it that we create and share knowledge and information and expertise in society? Uh, and traditionally, we've done this through the professions. You know, they have been the gatekeepers of their own respective body, bodies of expertise and knowledge. If you've got a medical problem, the only way to resolve it is to go to a doctor. You've right. got a legal problem. The only way to resolve it is to go to a lawyer. You've got a tax problem. You've got to go to, to a, a tax accountant and, and so on. And actually, what, what we set out in the book are new ways of producing and distributing expertise in society, uh, ways that look very different to the traditional profession. So you set out some there. Um, you talked about patients like me. We call that a community of experience. Right. Uh, that's well, uh, people. Daniel, uh, we have to, we're up against a break here, but um, we, sure. we definitely want to dive more into the grand bargain with you. I know Ed's got some questions surrounding that. Right. Uh, but right. folks, first, we'd like to remind you, if you'd like to contact Ed or myself, you can do so at asktsoe at verisage.com and check out the show notes. We'll post uh, the uh, video interviews with Dan and his dad uh, launching the book at Oxford and Google and um uh, where you can get the book and all of that at the soul of enterprise.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Is your website just a brochure? Or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. 
we build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with Daniel Suskind. Daniel, I just wanted to pick up on something that Ron left off earlier, and that is this idea of the grand bargain. And I guess I'm jumping ahead to the conclusion a, a little bit here, uh, so I don't want to give give too much of that away. But do you mm. think that the 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 grand bargain um, is something that will remain in place? And if it does, does that really necessitate the uh, the the the, the, the uh, notion that this knowledge be enclosed at some, uh, continue to be enclosed at some point. Yeah. Um, so I think the, so I set out what the grand bargain was before parts and, and, you know, part of it is that the professions get granted exclusivity. So only doctors can provide medical advice, only lawyers can provide legal advice and so on. But there's another part to the grand bargain, which is that, you know, this exclusivity doesn't come for free. You know, the professions have a responsibility as well. Uh, there's an expectation put on them that they make their respective bodies of expertise available in an affordable and, and an accessible way. Um, and in the book, we argue that by and large, the professions are failing. Uh, not enough people, and most people and organizations, in fact, can't afford the services of first-rate professionals or indeed any professionals. Now, the expertise of most professionals is a very, very scarce resource. Uh, we've built effectively a Rolls-Royce service for a few people, uh, but the majority are walking. And the promise of these new systems and machines, either operating alone or with uh, non-specialist, non-professional users, is a liberation of expertise, far more affordable uh, access to expertise that traditionally was locked up, as I said before, in the, in, in the heads of in the heads of professionals, um, so that's that's the you know that's the pressure that is uh, challenging the grand bargain, uh, you know, the, the the pressure to to liberalise and to allow more people to try in in different ways to to produce and to share expertise. Um, but you're right. At the end of the book, we have a we have a, a reflection where. You know, is it the case that 
we can do without no exclusivity at all. Um, you know, it, it, one of the fears that we talk about in the book is that you might get the, you might get a decline in the traditional professions, the old gatekeepers, but there's a risk that you simply replace them with new gatekeepers. Um, you know, new organizations, particularly technology companies who control and uh, are responsible for producing and sharing um, expertise. And it isn't clear that necessarily the grand bargain that was conceived in the 19th century applies to these new institutions and people. You know, they, they just, they look very different. And you know, it's, it's, a, it's, uh, it's one of the things that we say has to be addressed and has to be thought about, that, that the grand bargain was conceived and designed for what, what we call in the book, we call it a print-based industrial society. Uh, but we don't live in a print-based industrial society anymore. We live in a, in a technology-based internet society um, where there are very, very different ways to produce and share expertise. Uh, and we need to rethink. Now, it may be the case that the call for liberalization is a good one, um, the, that we ought to allow more people and different types of institutions to, to have a chance to produce and share expertise in a way that was traditionally only done by the professions. But that doesn't necessarily mean we want to deregulate. Um, we may want to keep in place certain types of frameworks that govern the behavior of these new people and new institutions. Uh, and this regulation may look very different to the traditional grand bargains. And I want to pick up on this, but first, a, a couple quick background questions. I, I work for a company called Sage, and I'm sure you've heard of, of them. Are you aware, or have you ever met the our now CEO of Sage, Stephen Kelly? He was the chief operating officer of Her Majesty's government for a while. I haven't, no. Okay. Just just curious about that. Anyway, I wanted to explain to you that my job at Sage is actually helping accountants, uh, mostly in North America, but really throughout the world, m- make, yeah. this, make th- this transformation, uh, be, be moving away from providing traditional service and t- more toward this idea of, of knowledge and that, uh, and I'm going to sound like a shill for my own company here, but we're, one, we're, we're putting in place some of these systems that you're talking about. One of them is called Sage View, which allows accountants and bookkeepers deeper exposure into their customers' books to allow them to make judgments um, or ahead of time, right? Whereas traditionally accountants has been about, and accounting firms have been about the past, right? Uh, what, what happened mm. yesterday or last quarter, we're really trying to help them project into the future um, what's, what's going to happen based on a lot of this, uh, a lot of the, the data that, that is available. Now, what's curious about that mm. is that we have to help these accountants and bookkeepers make a change to their business model because, and as you bring you bring this up in the book and deal with it on a couple of different occasions, the the, the billable hour model is completely broken from that yeah. perspective because you can't you can't call up a, a customer and say, hey, listen, I noticed that you're going to be out of cash in six months, and oh, by the way, we're, I'm charging you for this phone call by the hour. <laughs> Right, yeah. so you you have you have yeah. to have fixed price agreements in place. So um, I'm, I, I want to and I wanted to to dig in with you a little bit on that. You do mention the fact that the billable hour is a problem, but Ron and I have a theory. In fact, uh, are the his, the uh, the founding of the Verisage Institute, which uh, Ron is a co-founder of, is based on this. That the the real underlying problem is the timesheet, and. Yeah. Um, 
curious as to get your thoughts on this but with your, your background in economics. Uh, and Ron has made this connection, and I think it's a, a brilliant one, that really the billable hour and, and ultimately the timesheet is really a derivative of Marx's labor theory of value. Right. In, in, so, in the sense that uh, the value of uh, uh, some out- output is depends upon the amount, the value of the labor that was put into it. Correct. And I want, just wanted to get your reaction to that. Does that make sense to you? And you, it, do you see as that as that might be part of the problem here? I, I, I mean, you're you're right. We do, we look at the we look and are critical of the billable hour um, in in the book. It's it's. Um, <laughs> it's a funny story that uh, that my dad tells about. He he, uh, he hired my younger sister one summer to um, to uh, to it was to stamp a set of envelopes, um, and um, he said, Look, "I will pay you uh, this amount per hour to do it," and. She was very young at the time. She was maybe 14 or 15, and she smiled and looked at him and said, well, I'll just take my time then. <laughs> and, um, you know, if a 14 or a 15-year-old can cotton onto that, then, um, <laughs> then it does suggest that there's, there's, a, there's going to be a, there's a, there's a problem with it. I, I mean, the, 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 the point we make in the book, and it's quite an important one, and it's not, and I, I, I'd like to see to kind of discuss more is the idea of latent demand um, that there exists at the moment a great reservoir of unmet demand for professional service. You know, people who would like the expertise or advice or support of professionals but simply can't afford it. Uh, and the promise of the, many of these new systems and machines is that they provide. You know, on on a on a per unit basis, yes, it's it's cheaper. Uh, but the promise is of uh, you know, a liberation of this latent demand in a far greater volume. Um, you know, far more people having access to expertise that was previously charged, you know, at a far higher rate to far fewer people. Um, yeah, I know. I, I I totally agree. I mean, I I'm one of the people who does their taxes using an online tax return <laughs> software, um, yeah. much to the chagrin of chagrin of the people that I, I work with. And and I you do make a fantastic point, and you brought it up briefly earlier, um, and that is that expertise is the sca- scarce resource here, not time, right? And one of the things that I think is important to, that is a corollary to that is the is the notion that time is a constraint that we all live under. Right. <laughs> and uh, the, the, again, the really important point is the, is the fixation on, on output and what are the results of these things? And I, and I think you, your, your book dances all around that question, but doesn't, doesn't quite um, make it as forcefully as we do, but I, I, which is fine. But I, I just want to thank you for, uh, for, for really filling in some of the gaps, even especially in my thinking on it. So I uh, appreciate mm-hmm. that. So, um, but anyway, what are, con- continuing the, the, this notion of the, the future of the pro- professions themselves, yeah. um, it, and, and I know you, you have like, you don't have any specific timelines, but do you, do you see anything in the short term that's going to be changing, um, maybe in subtle ways? In, in the professions? Yes, in the professions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we, I mean, in the book, we set out, as I said at the start, the book is based on uh, a set of 
hundred or so interviews, but also lots of lots of research. and And we set out um, almost thirty trends, thirty things we see happening across the professions already. Um, and yeah, I think broadly, I mean, they're they're grouped under they're grouped under lots of different headings. I mean, the most the most remarkable one for me is the move away from the idea of professional work as a bespoke service. Now, bespoke is a word that uh, it's quite a British word and, not, and lots of, uh, doesn't always resonate with an American audience. It, bespoke, you can think of it as custom or tailored. You know, the idea that when you go and get a tailor-made suit, um, mm-hmm. each time the tailor sort of measures you up, starts, with a, starts from scratch and, and tailors this you know, one-off, unique, one-of-a-kind um, suit for you. Uh, there's, there's traditionally been a sense that that's, that's what professional work is like. You know, each time the architect starts traditionally from you know, a blank sheet of paper, the lawyer starts from you know, a blank contract. The, uh, the, the doctor treats every case independently. You know, everything is treated in a bespoke manner. Uh, and, what, and what we see in many of these new systems and machines is a move away from bespoke service. Um, uh, toward towards something actually we we call it mass customization. So it's still it's it's still tailored to to the particular needs of each individual recipient, but in a very very different way. Yeah. You know, the most well most well recognized legal brand in the U.S. isn't a traditional law firm. It's LegalZoom.com, <laughs> and you go you go there and you answer a set of questions, and you get an automated you know, contract or will or you know whatever particular legal document you're looking for uh, tailored to your needs. But it's, it's done in a very, very different fashion to that traditional belief that the only way to do it is to start from scratch, uh, yeah. to treat every individual case as a unique case and, and so on. But, but as I said in the book, we, do, we, look at, we look at almost 30 trends that we see uh, across the professions at the moment. Yep, and I think Ron's going to pick up on some of those, but right now we have to take a break and want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Also, feel free to visit us at thesoulofenterprise.com. We will post show notes. And, of course, out on Twitter, hashtag asktsoe. But right now we want to hear from our sponsor, Peter Wolf and Azamba. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We believe great companies can become even greater by challenging the status quo within their companies. The latest challenge to your status quo? The way people buy has changed. Buyers now control the majority of the front end of the sales process. Sellers must learn to facilitate a buying process, not conduct a sales process. Social buying signals are an opportunity for sales. Learn more. Go to quantacrm.com slash ABC to request a copy of the white paper. Always be closing a guide to the new art of social selling. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. 
The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise all right well welcome back everybody we're here with daniel suskin the co-author of the future of the professions how technology will transform the work of human experts and daniel there's so many places i want to go but um i'm gonna jump to the topic of jobs because um i've i've summed your book for different audiences i do a lot of public speaking and after i read it i was on the speaking tour and mostly cpas by the way and i kind of gave them the your your basic premise of the book and some of the examples and and had a discussion with them about some of this and Everybody, of course, starts to focus on jobs, jobs. What does this mean for jobs? There'll be less jobs. And I have to tell you that, you know, I, uh, as an economist, and I'm heavily influenced by the Austrian school, so just so you know where I'm coming from, Hayek, Mises, all of that. um, The purpose of an economy is not to create jobs. I mean, Milton Friedman said it best when he was over in China watching a a, a residential complex being built, uh, people were there with shovels moving the earth. And he asked his bureaucrat host, he said, why, why don't you bring in some, you know, some land uh, moving equipment, get this done in days. And, and the Chinese bureaucrat said, well, Mr. Friedman, you don't understand. This is a jobs program. We have to provide jobs for our people. And Friedman said, oh, well, then that's easy. Take away their shovels and give them spoons. So... <laughs> what is your what is your retort to this we're going to lose jobs as a result of all this technology I mean, so I think I have two two responses the, the first is uh, one of timings you know I think in the medium term the idea that technology will um, entirely replace jobs is slightly misleading. In fact, what technology will do is change jobs. It's not a question of job loss, but a question of job change. And one of the challenges in the medium term is to try and understand the new roles that people will have to do uh, in solving the sort of problems that traditionally were solved by the professions. So in the book, we set out uh, 12 future roles that we think uh, people will perform in, in, the, in the setting of the professions. And, you know, many of these are unfamiliar to traditional professionals. So jobs like you know, be, being a knowledge engineer or a process analyst or a system provider, you know, these are, these are job titles and job descriptions that don't resonate really with a traditional doctor or a lawyer. Uh, and, and so the challenge, is, the challenge there is to, to identify these new roles and to think about how you can, how you can, best place yourself to perform them. So that, that would, that's my first comment is that in the medium term, at least, I, um, I, I think the, the fear that technology is going to entirely replace jobs is, is slightly misleading. But in, in the longer term, when we look at this in the book, um, I think there is uh, a, 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 an interesting and a serious question about, about the future of work. 
uh, for people. Um, you know, when you look at, if you look at the different sorts of faculties that human beings bring to bear when they perform professional work, whether it's cognitive work, work with our minds, uh, manual work, work with our hands, yeah, emotional effective work, or work with our emotions, and empathy, for example, is quite an important thing that professionals often often appeal to, uh, or even the moral faculty. You know, lots of professional work involves um, deliberation about what the right thing to do is, what's good, what's bad. Um, when you look at these new systems and machines across all these types of faculties, they are making significant advances, particularly in cognitive work and, and manual work. Um, I mean, my, my response is to the, to the worries about... Um, about the very long term, is that it just doesn't seem right to say that the purpose of ill health, for example, is to provide a living for doctors. <laughs> yeah, that the purpose of legal problem, the existence of the law, is to provide a living for lawyers. Yeah, if we can find ways to resolve these problems that provide you know, well-paid, meaningful work for human beings, and that's wonderful, but our, our priority ought to be to try and find the most affordable and uh, effective ways to solve these these problems, um, and so to, to an extent, I, I I agree with your um, your your anecdote from before. Uh, it's, just, it's not the purpose of professional problems to provide a living for human for traditional professionals, um, and it's a I think it's a mistake to, to think that. Uh, that that right. then begs a lot. Of, that then begs a, a, a substantial set of further questions about you know what is it that people will do to make a living, and, and that's an important, an incredibly important and interesting question. But the answer to that isn't necessarily do the sort of things that traditional doctors and lawyers did, um, and um, yeah. So that 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 would be my response. It, I mean, in a lot of ways, this this happens all the time in other sectors of the economy. I mean, at one point, ninety percent of us were farmers, and now less than two percent are. And we used to have a million telephone operators, and those jobs are gone. I mean, jobs change all the time. Part of the natural gales of creative destruction, right? That Schumpeter wrote about. Um, I, I also wanted to ask you, you know, regarding this grand bargain, part of the yeah. problem I see, and, and I'm a CPA, by the way, or a recovering CPA, started my life in a then big eight firm, so you kind of get a sense yeah. for my age, but um, the fact that we give these professions a monopoly, that's why they're not innovative. That's why they haven't embraced these technologies. I mean, if you look at any sector that's regulated, uh, they're not innovative. You know, Silicon Valley's the the font of creativity it is because it's not regulated. If it was regulated, you know, we'd have vacuum tube valley probably in, you know, West Virginia named after some dead politician. Um, so I, I see this as a problem and and I think this is where regulation is a barrier to bringing some of these very valuable technologies to the consumer, which should be, Sovereign, right? It's the consumer that decides which of these products and services are valuable, not so much the mm. professions. I think, I, I think though, a regulator would argue that their their job, in a sense, is to is exactly that: is to try and protect consumers and recipients. I mean, my my response would be to emphasize the distinction that I, I drew before between liberalization and, and deregulation. Um, 
you know, one way to interpret what we're talking about in the book is it's a call for liberalization. It's a call to say, it's a call to saying, you know, we ought to allow new types of people and new types of institutions to have a go at providing the sort at solving the sort of problems that traditionally were solved by the professions. Um, and, and the book you know, gives lots of examples of what these new types of people and what these new types of systems might look like. Um, but there's a difference between saying that we ought to liberalize and allow that to happen and saying it's a free for all. Um, and, you know, making sure that there's an appropriate regulatory regime, um, is, I, I think is an, is an important thing to do. So, so this distinction between liberalization and deregulation, uh, I, th- I think is important. Uh, we can liberalize without entirely deregulating, but at the same time, we can also liberalize and have too much regulation. Um, but uh, distinguishing between th- those two things, I think, is quite useful. No, I do too, and I and I totally get that. And I guess I'm on the side more of of deregulation, deregulation rather than just liberalization, because I think, I mean, you just just look at the battle with Airbnb and hotels and taxis and Uber. Well, hell hath yeah. no fury like a profession opened up to competition. You know, they're not going to go down with a fight, um, and and they're going to try and regulate these new technologies that you so brilliantly document. They're going to try and regulate them um, and keep them away from the public, and and I think that's destructive of value. Um, so I, I think part and parcel of of this future has got to be deregulation, and we should rely more on reputation. Um, mm. You know, for the professions. I mean, if I'm not going to fly an airline that you know kills me, right? That has a plane crash. Reputation is what keeps an airline safe, not just regulate. I, I think reputation more so even than regulation. Um, I mean, I, I know we probably differ on that point, but and and I would probably go farther than you. But I just you know, it's really a, it's an interesting discussion. I mean, this goes back. Your book reminded me of Melton Friedman's PhD paper. Did you ever read that? I didn't know what was his PhD paper. It, it was income from independent professional practices, and he wrote it with Simon uh, Kuznets, I believe, in the 1930s. And Daniel, it was so controversial because he looked at doctors, lawyers, engineers, and CPAs, I think, and dentists, and it was so controversial that they delayed publication of it because he was arguing that the only reason medicine has a monopoly is to keep its wages higher than a market would pay them. And so Melton Friedman spent his whole life railing against occupational licensure and this whole grand bargain thing. He thought it should be completely deregulated. It should be left to insurance and other forms of of reputational capital that markets can provide. And I think until we do that, you're not going to see this font of innovation. Auditors, as a case in point, auditors, you know, they have this grand monopoly, right? This grand bargain that only they can do a test functions. Well, that's why they're not innovative. That's why an audit is performed the same way it was done when I started in the early 80s before the boon of technology. For the most part, these audits, you know, have not been subject to the technological revolution. And I think it's precisely because they don't face any competition. So I don't think liberalization goes far enough. I think we need to deregulate it, open up to competition and let the market innovate and, uh, you know, bring a a flourish, effervescence of new services and products to the the consumer. And this this is why the... This is why the debate about the grand bargain is so so important and so um, so interesting. The 
you know, be, be, because you know, what, what the people who put the grand bargain in place would say is that, you know, in part it's to provide exclusivity, but on the other hand, as, yeah, as I said before, there's the expectation that um, the work will be done in a reliable and a efficient and an effective way, and that, and that without the bargain, that that wouldn't that wouldn't happen. That, I mean, that the, wouldn't argument happen. In the, the, the argument in the professions is that the, the work this work is yeah, the professions are responsible for some of the most important problems that we have in, as a society. You know, they keep us in good health. They educate us and our children. You know, they enlighten us spiritually. They they give us advice on how to run uh, businesses and so on. So while so that that's perhaps why I'm more you know while while I I think liberalisation is a good thing, I'm perhaps more cautious on on deregulation. But it's but it's you know this is wherever you fall in this debate the. The old grand bargain was designed for a very, very different set of people and institutions. And we need to be thinking through what the new grand bargain looks like. Uh, because right. new people, new systems are already providing uh, this work, uh, providing access to, to expertise in very different ways. And, and we, we haven't got necessarily the best framework for, for supporting it. Right, right. Well, I think they are they are getting through the cracks, but you know, there's been cases over here in the various states um, yeah. that are trying to limit, you know, TeleDoc and other apps, and you know, because they're yeah. practicing, you know, medicine without a license and all of that. And I think that's going to be a huge issue as these new technologies roll forward. But anyway, just fascinating discussion, and and I'm I'm not trying to start a debate. I just wanted to no, not bring this it, up. It, it, it's exactly I, it's a, the discussion that needs to happen. Absolutely, because I, I think you're right. I think what we do totally agree on is the grand bargain has failed, and it is time to, and it's a human construct, like you point out, and if we humans designed it, we can redesign it, and I thought that was a really brilliant point in your book, but Daniel, unfortunately, we're up against it, and we have to go to another break, and folks, I'd like to remind you, you can... Uh, Get the show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com, and you can also uh, email me and Ed at asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from Ed's employer, Sage. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue, being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit BelieveInYourNumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Daniel Suskin, the author of The Future of the Professions. And, and Daniel, in our, in our last remaining minutes, I um, wanted to ask you about, um, you know, what, what, is your, what is your advice to a young student, maybe just graduated high school, is looking at various colleges, and he wants to be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant? What would be your advice to that young person? I think I think my advice would be one of mindset. You know, if if this young person wants to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or an architect, the way their you know uncle or auntie was a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant, I think they'll be very disappointed. I think the work that the professions do and the way that they operate is going to change more in the next 20 years than it has in the past 200 years. Um, so if, if they go into the professions and they start training for the professions with the expectation that they or their work that they will do will be the work of a traditional professional, they're going to be very, very disappointed. Um, if, on the other hand, they go into their careers of the mindset that what I want to do is to solve legal problems, to solve medical problems, to, to help people run their businesses. And I'm going to be ruthless in finding the most effective and the most efficient and the most affordable ways doing so, uh, independent of whether or not this looks like the traditional ways in which professionals might have worked. And I think that will make for a far more fulfilling and far more exciting, um, um, far more exciting career. Uh, you know, to the, so, that 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 would be that would be my my sort of my my main piece of advice about the the mindset that you have, uh, and and right. if they want to get a look at the sort of roles that they could expect to perform, we we discuss them in the book and we and we set them out, and they're the sort of things that I think they ought to to, to expect to be able to or, or to will be expected to be able to do if they want to 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 solve these sorts of problems. And Daniel, this is Ed again. I. I Rod oh, yeah. discovered your book, and I was reading uh, "Humans Are Underrated" by Jeff Colvin. I don't know if you've come across that yeah. work, but it's very, 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 very similar in theme. So, the, the, uh, I think I have some of the concepts intermingled in my head so much because I was reading both books at the same time. Um, sure. and, but one of the things I think that you got you point out, and I think it's a, an important one, is what what is it that humans uh, are should continue to do in the future, right? You, you, I, I forget exactly how you put it. The question, the question isn't what, exactly. what is it machines are capable of, but what is it that we prefer humans to continue to do? And I think that's what um, Colvin is, is asking as well. That's right. So in, in the book, we, you know, we, we ask, we end the book with, we say the two big moral questions that we haven't answered and we need to answer. You know, one of them is that Traditionally, the professions have owned and controlled their respective bodies of expertise and knowledge. You know, lawyers have looked after legal knowledge. Doctors have looked after medical knowledge. Accountants have looked after accounting knowledge and so on. Uh, and they've been the, you know, the old gatekeepers of this knowledge. Um, if what we articulate and envisage in the book is right, 
then we'll see a decline in these old gatekeepers and potentially the rise of new gatekeepers, uh, new institutions who control these uh, these bodies of expertise. And so the question of who ought to control uh, these bodies of expertise in, in the future is a very important one. You know, if we're going to see the decline of the traditional professions, do we want these new gatekeepers or do we perhaps want uh, ownership and control to be spread more widely? So that, that's the first moral question. But then the second moral question is precisely the one that you've identified, which is yeah, these systems and machines are becoming increasingly capable. That's the phrase we use in the book. They're able to perform more and more types of tasks that traditionally we thought only human beings could perform. But there is a real difference between machines being able to perform. Being able, there's a real difference between saying that a machine can perform a task and saying that a machine ought to be able to perform the task. Uh, that, that second question is a moral question. It's a normative question. Yeah. Most people, for example, including me, feel uneasy at the thought of a system choosing to turn off a life support machine. Most people feel uneasy at the idea of a machine passing a life sentence. You know, there are certain types of tasks that we might want a human being necessarily to be involved in. Uh, and in fact, we call... In the book, we call for a moral uh, for a, uh, a government-led public inquiry into this this exact question. You know, what sort of tasks are there that we think simply shouldn't be done by these new systems and machines? And, and there's a parallel for it in the UK. Uh, there was a report known as it was uh, it's called the Warnock Inquiry, and it was done um, done just as uh, IVF and test tube babies were becoming. Uh, as a technology will become increasingly feasible and increasingly affordable. Uh, and that, that, that raised really difficult and important moral questions that at the time hadn't been answered. And, and so this inquiry led by Mary Warnock uh, was set up to look at, you know, are there certain things that we're technologically able to do, but we ought not to do? Uh, and we think we've reached a similar moment in the professions. Uh, there are certain types of tasks that can now be performed by machines um, and perhaps they ought not to be. Now, um, you know, we, we don't reach a position on which, where that line lies, what, what tasks should be performed or what tasks shouldn't be performed. We say that's a, that's, a, that's a decision that needs to be put to public debate. But it's a debate we need to have sooner or later uh, before these machines become more and more capable. No, absolutely. I mean, of course, I think the, the great example of that is is Captain Chesley Sullenberger and him his decision to land that plane in the Hudson River about a decade ago uh, versus try to get it to the airport. And ha- had a computer been in control, it would have been subject to the biases of the programmer, which probably would have said try to land the aircraft on a, on a, and not in, not in not in a in the river, <laughs> right? So similar kind of kind of thing. But anyway, this is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, we need to close it out here, Justin. We're up against it. But thank you so much. And we will post full show notes. And, of course, we will send you a link. And we'll link to uh, as much as we can about you and your videos and all of that. But, uh, folks, this is a this is the best book I read in uh, 2015. So highly, highly recommended. It's incredibly thought-provoking. And, uh, Daniel, you and your dad just did a fantastic job on this. I, I congratulate you. It's a, it's a work of genius. Uh, Ron, thank you. That's very kind of you. All right. So thank you, folks. And Ed, uh, we'll see you in 167 hours. 
This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. Join us next week, folks. We're going to have Mark Coisiel on, the VP of Firm Services and Global Alliances at the AICPA to discuss more of the future of the professions. And we'll see you then. 